Welcome to Add Passion and Stir, our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world, especially in the time now of coronavirus. And we've got a guest today who is on the front line of that response. It's Commissioner Catherine Garcia, who is the Commissioner of Sanitation for the City of New York. Not only that, she is the food czar, and she's held almost every other complicated and important position. Catherine, I feel like your title should just be superwoman or superhero. Um, it's amazing what you're doing. I'm almost guilty, feeling guilty for taking your time, given the pressing nature of what you're about. But I know uh, it's going to be really important to our listeners to hear a little bit about some of the challenges and the solutions that you're in the thick of in New York City. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And I wish a superwoman came with superpowers. It would make my life a lot easier. I'll bet it would. How do you become um, food czar? How does that even happen? Well, I think, I mean, a lot of what's been happening in the city over the last few weeks is a little bit of confronting new challenges every single day, whether or not that was how do you increase hospital beds to how do you get food and figuring out how, how to create real teams around those challenges that might be very different than what we've done in the fa- in the past in terms of being in silos uh, and really saying, here's the problem. We're going to have to build a team. We're going to have to find a solution. Uh, and that's what I've been doing you know, for most of my years in government. Um, and that's a lot of years, right? D- didn't you actually start out as an intern in the Department of Sanitation? I did. That was many moons ago. <laughs> that was, uh, wow. Yeah, that was, oh, my God, probably close to 30 years ago. Um, but I did, I, I went into the private sector for a little while before coming back to government in 2006. Uh, but then also involved, I know, in running the city's water supply, wastewater treatment plants. It really feels like you've had some of the most, uh, not just some of the most complex roles in the city, but the ones that are really matters of life and death for New Yorkers. Right. No, I mean, all of our essential services, uh, you can't, you can't wake up in the morning if we don't have water in the city. You can't survive in a city if you don't have waste disposal. Uh, you find out pretty quickly that these things uh, matter a tremendous amount as soon as you start to say they might not be available. Um, so I, I always feel like you get up every day and you know that you're doing incredibly important work that touches over 8 million people. Wow. And just before we get to the food czar, just to give us a sense of scale and magnitude for uh, the uh, role of commissioner of the Department of Sanitation, uh, what's that department look like? How many employees, how many people report to you? What's the budget? How does that work? It's got to be enormous. It's, it's, we're, we're big. Um, so we're about 10,000 employees, a little shy of that number. Uh, we have both uniformed sanitation workers as well as other critical roles like auto mechanics, um, engineers, uh, to make sure that we can get out and get the, the waste that's on the curbs of New York every single day. And that ends up being about 10,000 tons of refuse and about 2,000 tons of recyclables. And then, of course, in the winter, we plow snow. <laughs> and so when the mayor says, I need you to be food czar during this uh, unbelievable crisis, um, you're obviously a really super talented manager. Um, but how do you, you how do you say, yeah, oh, I can put on a, a second hat 
could and could you put on a third or a fourth or is this or how many how many jobs are you going to take at once? Well, currently I actually have four, um, but the the real thing with being able to the fact that one is I have a great team at sanitation, which allows me to build another great food team um, and really drive both of those at the same time. Um, you know, for the work of sanitation. It got a little scary when we had a lot of people out at the beginning of April, but people have come back, and that has been extraordinarily relieving for me. But we did not lose a step making sure we were collecting waste. And then on the food team, it is a little strange because many of the people that I've pulled together, I've never met. Um, and we probably will not meet until after uh, the pandemic is over. But they've been an incredibly talented, multifaceted uh, group. And, you know, it, it's about really defining what your goal is and then backing into all the steps you're, need to, you're going to need to do to get there. And I've, I've heard the mayor, uh, de Blasio, say that the goal is to ensure that uh, there's not a single New Yorker that goes without food during this time when they need it. Uh, is, that, is that a fair definition? That's a fair definition, and it's really two-pronged. It's not only about getting food into people's hands who are very needy, but there were some times about making sure that the supply chain that stretches across the country, uh, that we had insight into what was happening, and to the any mitigating action we could take, we were taken. And I think the city and the mayor and you're responsible for, if I'm correct, uh, an investment to the tune of about $170 million in the food system during this time. Yes. Uh, is that that's accurate? accurate. So it, it, well, that's really inspiring. I'm inspired that there's a food czar and I'm inspired that the, the you and the city are behind that type of significant investment. Right. And I think that that probably was a low estimate, but we are, we are looking to figure out how to recalculate, but it's literally make sure people have food use all the channels you can, whether or not that's food pantries or schools or delivery, uh, to keep people from going hungry. How did, how, how did you get up to speed on the, the food side of this? What, what, I mean, just like kind of walk us through, what are the first couple of things you did? You hung up the phone with the mayor and then, uh, how did you decide what to do next? It's a big job. So there had been sort of disparate pieces of it that were going on. I mean, that go on on any given day, uh, around, you know, what's happening in the food pantry system, what's happening with feeding seniors. And so it was digging into those different current ways of doing things uh, and then looking at it through the lens of like, okay, we are going to have to make some significant changes because we're about to tell everybody they can't go outside. Um, we're going to say that, you know, the economy literally stopped on a dime. How are we going to make process improvements, really, to make sure we're getting funding and food out to people. And then also trying to coordinate with the philanthropic sector, who was doing a lot of work in this area before. And we're standing up many things like the feeding heroes at the hospital. And what surprises, what obstacles have you found between you and what you're trying to get accomplished? Right. It's really just the scale. Not any one piece of it is necessarily difficult in and of itself. But the scale is really massive. So having enough food to do delivery of a million meals a day 
uh, not there isn't a single food provider who can give you that. Well, maybe maybe the army, but but everyone else. And you are trying to activate local caterers, local restaurants in this process, and then to do the delivery using taxi drivers who have been unemployed, but getting enough of them, but not too many of them at any one of our hubs to do this distribution. Uh, so it, it's just really been, I would say, the sheer scale and magnitude of how many people are in need. So when you talk about taxi drivers, tell us a little bit about what some of the kind of the spokes are on the distribution wheel. I know there's there's hubs where people go to pick up food. Uh, are you saying that taxi drivers are actually also delivering food to individuals? Yeah, so we um, we are using over 500 of our local public schools to distribute food every day. And so anyone can go and pick up food if they're in need. It is very contactless because we didn't want to endanger the school food employees or the public. And so the food is there for you to take, you know, three meals a day for um, any member of your family. And then uh, for people who are homebound, and particularly for seniors, we have been doing delivery. So we, we contract with some of these restaurants and uh, catering halls to, they bring food to a distribution center and then taxi drivers literally line up and we give them their, their routes and they go and deliver food across the city. Um, and today I think they'll probably deliver, um, and yesterday they probably did 700,000 deliveries. Uh, across the city. So it's, it's an enormous amount of food that we are trying to make sure gets into people's hands, and particularly for seniors. So, Catherine, are those the two uh, main buckets? I, I've, I've been looking at numbers of uh, school meals that are at about 500,000 a day. You, you know way better than I do, but that's what I've seen. So tell me if I'm wrong. And then you're saying the the, the difference between that and uh, whatever else you're serving or most of these kind of homebound uh, folks that the taxis are delivering to 700,000 a day is just a staggering. Yeah. And, and this is literally a program that started the last week of March. So it's been exponential growth. Um, and we also are using some other caterers. We'll do some of the deliveries if vis-a-vis how we present them with the data. Um, and we also do deliveries, uh, if it's a whole building of seniors, we will bring a truck just to the building for all the meals that the seniors need. And then work with like a community organization or volunteers to get that all to their apartment. Is this going to get uh, easier or harder as time goes on? So I think that there are two ways to think about it. One is it should get a little bit easier as people are freer to go out. Um, there also are more grocery stores that have started reopening in some areas. The other piece of it is as people are able to get food stamps, SNAP benefits, they will have money in their own pocket to buy food, but there's going to be transitions like that happen. Like not everyone's going to be recommended to go out in phase one. Seniors may still be told that they should really sequester themselves. The schools may reopen in the fall, and that will change how we have to think about distribution. So it's, uh, it's about agility, 
um, and figuring out how to turn and, and plan for any eventuality. I want to make sure that we let uh, anyone who's listening know how to get food because I think there's a, a website that newyorkcity.gov slash get food that actually maps out if you haven't found it yet and you need it. Is that the best way for a New Yorker to find it? Absolutely. On that, it has every food pantry as well as every public school that is serving food as well as how to apply for emergency home delivery. But if you are not tech savvy, you can also just call 311 and say, get food. And you get connected to the closest place. Yep. So in your judgment, is it 18 and younger and 60 and over that are the greatest areas of need in terms of age groups? I actually think it's broader than that. I think it's different. I think that there are many people even in the sort of young adult category, adult category that are very food insecure and may never have been connected to any services. But for the very young and for those who are over 65, um, for the seniors, we want to make sure that they are getting things at home primarily, that they're not going to congregate settings. And for the children, we want to make sure that they're getting the nutritional value that's appropriate for a kid. Uh, and that's why School Food knows that, has, you know, deep experience there. But I think that food insecurity is broader than any one age group. And I think New York had uh, over a million, 1.2 million, some food insecure individuals before the COVID crisis. And we think that's north of 2 million at this point. Uh, based on what we see in terms of demand for food as well as uh, what the applications look like for um, for SNAP benefits as well as, you know, for unemployment benefits. The 500 schools that are, are kind of food hubs right now, will they continue to mm-hmm. provide meals throughout the course of the entire summer? That is what we're looking at. We're finalizing those plans now, but our presumption is that we are going to need to continue to feed people. Uh, and this has been a very effective way to do that. And I think you said um, that that anybody can come and get a meal there for their family and take it back. Yep. Is that right? So, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't have to be the kids that are enrolled in that school. It can be other members of the family. Right. No, And you don't even need to have a kid. Yeah. Uh, well, that's great. You know, this is, if this is really there. We want to make sure if you need to come to a school to get food, you just come to a school and you get food. And will some? How will that work in terms of typically school meals are federally reimbursed? Does that does that get sorted out later, or do you have a feeling about how that's going to work? So children's meals are federally reimbursed. So we are tracking like if kids are coming to pick up the food versus adults, um, or if it's a parent coming to pick up, we do track that for reimbursement purposes. But, you know, it's been very clear that if you're hungry and you need food and we are unable to get reimbursed, we're still going to do it. And you have kids coming as well? It's not just parents uh, or, or, I mean, families having their kids leave home and go do that? Yes. No, we usually uh, we try and have the kids come between 730 and 1130 and adults come between 1130 and 130. But we really won't turn anybody away. Great. Um, you talked about back to school in the fall, which I am assuming is going to be a national preoccupation soon in terms of, you know, across the country, how and whether kids are going to go back to school. And from a feeding point of view, uh, my son's school, um, 
we live in in, in Boston. Uh, his school told us that you know they might be back in September, they might not be back, or they might be back every other day. Uh, and so the complexities of how you think about kids and families who depended on school meals but are only going to be there every other day, uh, I'm assuming there's a whole range of options that the cities looked at that haven't been decided upon yet. Um, what will the planning for that look like? The, the, the kind of the the process improvement, as you described it, that's got to be mind-boggling. Yeah, no, I mean, I I am so hopeful that we are back in school come September, but I know that it is not guaranteed, and we are many months away from uh, that getting the green light to do that. And clearly, this virus keeps throwing us curveballs. Um, there is a lot of deep thinking around how do you manage school if you go back in a way that's different and looks different than it did in the past. Um, and so many, many different options being thought through, planned through, uh, and food is clearly a part of that and how we make sure it may be that it's nobody eats in the lunchroom, everybody eats in their classroom and figuring out how to manage that. So speaking of being hopeful, um, one of the things that I've been hopeful of is that when we do get to the other side of this, um, if we have a situation where everybody eats in the classroom, uh, which is something at Share Strength on the No Cut Hungry campaign, we've ad- advocated certainly for uh, breakfast because some kids can't get to school uh, early enough to be there before school or there's the stigma attached sometimes. Uh, we could come out of this with a, um, a kind of a, a feeding strategy that is less bureaucratic, less burdensome, has fewer barriers to kids getting the meals that they need. Um, and that would be something that when this is all said and done, might be um, a process improvement of its own. All right. I think that looking at food, you know, and I, I have not been in the food space before this, um, but one of the things that I reflect on is that, you know, there, there are specific programs and they sort of drive the development of, like, or specific funding streams that drive the development of the program rather than sort of being more client-focused or kid-focused about what works for them rather than what works for reimbursement. Um, And at least in New York City, every kid, uh, it's universal free lunch uh, so that, you know, to to deal with the stigma. And we do breakfast in the classroom, uh, but there's a lot of food that has to move through that cafeteria. So, you know, harder on everyone to do it differently. But, you know, we, there has been nothing easy so far about having to confront this virus. Well, you know, our kind of, uh, I guess, operating philosophy at Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign is that um, we have no shortage of food in this country, although there's some supply chain risk, uh, and no shortage of food programs. Um, so that hunger should be a solvable problem problem. There's logistical barriers and sometimes there's political barriers and sometimes indifference. Um, But with the right leadership and the kind of commitment that um, you all have made, it feels like at least childhood hunger should be a solvable problem in New York City and New York State and around the country. Is that, do you think that's legit? Absolutely. This is a question of where do you want to put your money to make sure that you don't have children hungry. Um, and there are lots of programs out there. You're quite correct. 
figuring out how to overcome sort of the bureaucratic challenges between them uh, is not unsolvable. Um, it's really, I think, a pretty straightforward thing to, to make it so you're ensuring that no child is hungry at the very least. I'm, I'm sure you're not eager to keep all four of your hats on permanently, but does New York City need a food czar with or without COVID? I do think you need something that looks across. I mean, like, you know, we're a very big city. There's a food in, in many different aspects uh, that you might or might not think about. You know, school. The, the Department of Education, I think, is the biggest feeding program in the country. But there are other large feeding programs within the city. And then, of course, um, all of the benefit, the public benefits that are available, you know, they're different blocks. They're not, they're not seamless for, for people. And I think having somebody, not me necessarily, uh, I'd like to take off a hat or two, be able to look across and find that, like, you know, who's got the best contracts, who's got the best nutrition, who's giving you the best logistical system so you're not reinventing the wheel all the time. When you talk about the size of the system, one of the, uh, I don't want to let you go in a minute, but one of the last things I'd love to hear you describe a little bit is just the, the complexity of feeding so many different types of people from so many different cultural backgrounds, so many health needs, religious needs. Describe a little bit about what that's been like and just what, what's it look like? What, what kind of issues do you have to be sensitive to in terms of the kinds of food that you're getting to people? So one of the real challenges is, you know, how do you get the logistics to work, particularly for fresh food versus shelf-stable food so that you are delivering healthier food? To people, but you know we're we're a city of incredible variation, and so we need people to we need to be able to deliver the right food at the right time. And by that I mean, if you keep kosher and I deliver you something not kosher, I have just wasted my time because you're not going to eat it. If you need a halal meal, if I get you something else, you're not going to eat it. So making sure that we are really trying to deliver both religiously appropriate and culturally appropriate food is extremely challenging. I think we're there with the religious food on the culturally appropriate. We are getting there. I wouldn't say that we're all the way there yet, but I think we're in a better place vis-a-vis seniors. But, you know, it, it is it is definitely true that people want to eat the food that you know comes from their culture. And if it doesn't, they may not eat what you deliver to them. So the challenge of we're talking about getting that right a million times a day. Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, and we have, you know, there have been times we haven't gotten it right. We've been told, trust me. <laughs> We're not shy. Not shy at all. Catherine, have you had a chance, I'm guessing not, but have you had a chance to just step back and um, feel gratified by what you're doing? I mean, this is life and death stuff. You're feeding people that may not get to eat if it weren't for you and for this system that you're kind of uh, coordinating. Uh, personally, have you had a chance to just absorb that? I mean, I, I feel like very honored to be able to get to do this work. Um, do I step back and feel grateful yet? No, I don't feel like we're not at, we're not at a place where I can feel like the system's on autopilot and everything is working. This is every day fixing all of the challenges to make it work and getting the 10,000 things that need to go right to go right. Uh, so maybe in a little while I'll be able to feel like it's all in a good place. But right now we are still building 
meet both the need and, and all of the expectations. Uh, are there any other areas where it always goes right? Sanitation, water, any areas? I mean, in New York City, it's got to be. And you've got to probably have to just balance the, the wins with the, with the challenges. Yeah, no, there is definitely uh, uh, very varied, but you know, nothing ever goes perfectly, I'm sure. But, you know, we still have we have still have a ways to, to go. I think part of it is just meeting the we're not at what I'm not totally sure where my customer base is yet. I am hoping that when we are at a million meals a day next week and 500 at the DOE site, 500,000, that we will be meeting the need. But given everything that's been happening, you know, something else could change and then the need could grow. I mean, that, that is what I'm trying to sort of constantly work towards. Yeah, and just to clarify for me, the, mil- the, the million meals a day, are the 500,000 at the schools part of that or are they in addition to that? No, that's a, they're in addition. They're in addition to that. Okay, that's what I wasn't, uh, I didn't quite realize. That really is amazing. So you're doing 500,000 meals for school kids at these school hubs or whoever shows up there and another million meals on top of that every day. Uh, okay, you've got your work cut out for you. I've got to let you go. I am so grateful that you took the time. Uh, I, and one uh, thing I want to mention, Commissioner, is you know, share our strength on the No Kid Hungry campaign. We're funding lots of efforts around the country, including in New York City. Uh, I know from talking to people inside the DOE that there's lots of complications in terms of uh, taking and utilizing private or charitable funds. Uh, I think we're going to be trying to do some things over the summer to uh, use our dollars to promote awareness and education of how the summer meals program is working. But uh, just kind of keep tucked away. If you see some things that you think we can be supportive of, we can be valuable uh, at as a as a grant maker, worthy programs that uh, can where it's appropriate to take and use private support, please call on us. Oh, I definitely will. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, we're so grateful. We've been talking to Commissioner Catherine Garcia, the commissioner of the Department of Sanitation and also New York City's food czar responsible for getting uh, over a million, million and a half meals a day to New Yorkers in this time of the COVID crisis. Uh, Thank you so much, Commissioner, for being with us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore on behalf of our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry Campaign. Our producer, uh, Paul Whittle at District Productive. Uh, thanks for listening. You can go onto our website at passionstir.com, find previous episodes, share this one, uh, rate us and rank us and subscribe. Thanks so much. I'm Billy Shore. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.